Let's open our Bibles this morning to the New Testament book of Acts. We're in chapter 9. We're going through the book of Acts chapter by chapter, verse by verse within that chapter. And we find ourselves in Acts chapter 9, looking at verses 1 through 9. The topic, Saul quits kicking against the goads and is saved on the road to Damascus. The title of our message, Goad Hazard. <laughs> or, My Way on the Highway. <laughs> I'm going to put in a laugh meter. This is why we have usher meetings. Anyway, Acts chapter 9, <laughs> verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city. You will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray together. Lord, how we long for your insight into these words, into this passage of Scripture. We want to understand what it's about, why it was written for our learning here in 2007. And so guide and direct us through it, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. To this day, I would swear that there was a ladder in the road. We were returning from a worship conference, and we were just north of Costa Mesa along Interstate 5. I was driving a rented Ford Explorer filled with conferees from our fellowship. Mostly they were napping, and so I don't blame them for their contrary opinion about what happened next. Suddenly and without warning, there was an extension ladder in my lane. I swerved in what I thought was a very controlled manner to avoid the hazard. No one else saw the ladder, but it was there. Maybe. We arrived home safe and sound and without further incident, but being as this was about the third incident, uh, none of those passengers will ever drive with me again, even locally. Saul encountered a very spectacular road hazard. No one traveling with him saw it quite like he did. It was the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. The Lord made a very pointed statement he said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a long wooden pole used to prod stubborn oxen. One end of the pole is either sharpened to a point 
or it has a sharp piece of metal attached to it. When an ox doesn't want to obey their master, it kicks against him, but he goads them back on their way. He pricks them uh, with this sharp instrument. Jesus had been goading Saul. Saul had been stubbornly resisting. On the road to Damascus, Saul would finally relent, and the Lord's goading would change to his guiding. Before you were saved, and sometimes even after you are, Jesus has to goad you. You've chosen a way that seems right to you, but in the end it leads to destruction and to death. He wants to guide you along his way that yields peace and leads to life. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus goads you along your way. And number two, Jesus guides you along his way. First of all, in verses one through five, Jesus goads you along your way. Now, this is going to be the first of three accounts of Saul's conversion in the book of Acts. The other two are in chapter 22 and 26. In chapter 13, we're going to read that Saul was also called Paul. And so this morning, I may get his name mixed up several times. Uh, We know him as the Apostle Paul. His Hebrew name was Saul, and so we're talking about the same individual. His conversion settled his calling as an apostle, and from this point forward, he becomes the main character in the early history of the church. Of course, Jesus is the subject of this book. Uh, He's the true main character, but from an earthly perspective, it follows the travels of the apostle Paul. Now, we first encountered Saul at the stoning of Stephen in chapters 7 and 8. He led the persecution against the first Christians. And we read there that he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, we're returning to Saul in verse 1 of chapter 9 where we read, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. The word for breathing is literally breathing in. It was as if he were a predatory animal who had caught a scent. That's exactly how the word is used. I watched a show the other day about great white sharks. In fact, some of you may have been riveted to the television set as I was. They had, it was like Shark Day on uh, the Discovery Channel. Every program was about sharks. And uh, since I don't go into the ocean anymore, I'm excited about that, you know, so... Uh, By the way, uh, you laugh, but you don't want to be going out into the waters of the Red Triangle, uh, which is from Monterey north to just north of San Francisco and out a ways. That is now uh, designated as the area that has the most great white shark attacks anywhere in the world. And so, God bless you, uh, boogie boarders and surfers. And uh, it's kind of cool, you know, when you see, you know, sharks... Do you mind? Uh, (laughs) Sharks kind of circle underneath you, and then they see you, and they come up, and they break the water, you know, uh, and they kill you. Uh, And uh, they don't really want human beings. You don't have enough, well, most of us don't have enough fat content for a shark. I mean, they're they're looking for blubber. Uh, And so this is why, and by the way, this is why a lot of people survive shark attacks, because they'll bite, but not 
totally because they, they, they think, hey, it's not worth the risk uh, because you don't have enough fat for me to eat you. And so then they swim off. Uh, of course, you're maimed and bleeding to death. But uh, anyway, you know, they're, they're discriminatory eaters. Anyway, they... they they, uh, they hang out in this one area, uh, and they call it the Red Triangle. Oh, I was going to tell you that a surfer or a boogie boarder on top of the board, you look just like a, a seal or a sea lion from underneath when you're kind of doing this thing on your board, and that's why you get attacked. So anyway, have fun. A great white shark can detect a single drop of blood in over 25 gallons of water. It doesn't sound like much, but it's, it's, you can't do that. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. I mean, I've heard these statistics. I love statistics. You know, people say, yeah, a shark can, you know, if, you, if you've got an old cut, they can smell it 10 million miles away. You know, sharks in space can see that. But, uh, you know, you have to be careful about stuff. But, I mean, they, they really are, discri- they, they, they have a scent for blood, just like in Finding Nemo. I mean, when Bruce gets Dory's scent. I mean, it's real. Anyway. Saul caught a scent of the disciples of the Lord who were 200 miles away. And this is, this is exactly the picture that is 200 miles from where Paul was, Saul was, he heard of disciples of the Lord and it, it became a predatory instinct in him. He wanted to go and find them and murder them. And so in verse 2, he asked letters from the high priest of the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The disciples of the Lord in Damascus may have fled there from Jerusalem when persecution first broke out. More likely, they had been in Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost, gotten saved on the day of Pentecost, and then returned home to Damascus. Back home, they continued to attend their local synagogues. Letters from the high priest would instruct the synagogue leaders to identify those who had returned from Jerusalem, converted to Jesus Christ. Saul would then seize them and bring them back as prisoners. Christians were called the disciples of the Lord, and the church was called the way. It might derive from one of Jesus' I am statements where he said, John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so it could be that this was a common uh, presentation of the gospel among these uh, early believers where they would tell people, hey, Jesus is the way. And uh, so for whatever reason, they began to call the disciples of Jesus the way. What I like about this is that Saul understood there was no middle ground. There could be no compromise. There could be no tolerance of Christianity. Either Judaism was correct and Christianity was therefore a damnable heresy, or Christianity was correct and Judaism was now obsolete. There there was no mixing of the two. There was no getting along. We need a little less tolerance of other religions and philosophies as Christians. Now, we are to be graciously intolerant, showing love, and not have a desire to murder people, not suggesting that we return to murdering people, uh, you know, over our differences. But we, we need to be less tolerant in a society that tolerates everything but Christianity. And so, you know, I can sit down with an imam and a rabbi and a Hindu and uh, the Dalai Lama if he's, you know, passing through. And I, I mean, you can sit down with these people. We can talk with them. 
but you know that they are wrong and you are right because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There, there really isn't any what we call today wiggle room in Jesus' statements. Josh McDowell says he's either the Lord or he was a lunatic. When a guy comes and says, I am the way, no one comes to the Father but by me, then you don't have another guy come and say, well, why don't we get together because I'm also a way. Oh, yeah, that sounds great. It, 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 there's, there can't be any real compromise. And so as, as Christians, we need to be a little bit more careful about what we allow to come into the church. We're pretty good about keeping out false religions and naming the cults. But then you get into certain beliefs and philosophies like psychology and things like that. And we not only they creep into the church, we go and get them and we deliver them to the church. We need to be a little bit less tolerant of things that are antagonistic to biblical Christianity. There is a murderer. It's the devil. John chapter 8 calls him a murderer because he wants to keep folks on a broad path that will lead them to damnation. So we want to be less tolerant, graciously so. And so verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. The other accounts of this event tell us it was high noon. Saul was almost to the city. Without any warning, Saul was surrounded by a light brighter than that noon desert sun. It was as if he were under a heavenly spotlight. Verse 4, then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In one of the other accounts, you learn that they all fell to the ground. Now, the description gives rise to the common Bible myth that Saul was knocked off his horse. Many paintings of this show him on a white steed. Nowhere are we ever told he was riding a horse. One scholar noted, and I quote, painters are in almost every case wretched commentators. And so be careful. You know, before I was a Christian, everything I knew about the Old Testament was in the movie The Ten Commandments. And, and I, I just, you know, you, no one had explained to me that sometimes people who make movies or write books don't follow things accurately. And, and so I, you know, I was down with all of that. And when I read the Bible, I said, huh, wow, I don't, I didn't, I don't remember this Nefertiri stuff, you know, and stuff and all the additional information that, that went into who Charlton Heston was and all that kind of stuff. And so... A lot of times people are saying, you know, well, Paul got knocked off his horse. Uh, maybe, but it doesn't say here that he had a horse. Now imagine the impact of the question, why are you persecuting me? Saul thought he was persecuting men and women who were following the heretical teachings of a dead man. Now it quite literally dawned on him that Jesus was alive. Now before we continue with Saul, we might want to consider the impact of his question upon ourselves. Jesus takes very seriously words spoken against or actions taken against his saints. Whatever you say and do to believers, you are saying and doing about or to the Lord. It would be as if Jesus suddenly appeared in a conversation and said, Gene, Gene, why are you gossiping about me? And I would say, Lord, what are you talking about? I'm talking about this person. Let me tell you what they did. 
and whatever it might be, we want to have a little bit more concern about how we talk to each other even about each other because the Lord takes all of this very seriously. Uh, it, it's, and it, in, in every sense, it's like somebody talking about your wife because Jesus considers the church his bride. I mean, oftentimes people, they think they offend me. You have to go a long ways to offend me. I can offend you better than you can offend me, nanny, nanny. Whatever you say, let's see, how does it go? Uh, never mind. But anyway, oh yeah, it's, remember, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. But uh, people say, well, did I offend you? I said, no, you have to say something bad about my wife to offend me. And I'm serious about that. And, and so, I mean, if somebody comes up to you, men, it's Father's Day, and says, starts saying, hey, your wife, man, I mean, Hey, could we step behind the building so Gene doesn't see? Just, you know, I mean, it's on, you know. Don't be talking about my wife like that. And so Jesus is like, hey, this is, the, this is my bride, the bride of Christ. You're, you're dragging my bride out of their homes and separating families and throwing them into prison. You're murdering some of them. And so this is a very huge impact on, the, uh, on Saul. And so in verse 5, he says, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, let me stop for just a second. Some of your Bibles either don't have a few of these words or they have all these notes that say these aren't in the original manuscripts and things like that. These exact words, this part about Jesus and the goads and all that, these do appear again in the other accounts of Saul's conversion. And so even if they're not here in some of the original manuscripts, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so don't, you know, don't worry, don't be nervous. You know, this is something Jesus did say to Saul. Now, there's a lot of scholarly debate as to whether this initial word for Lord was just a polite title or a recognition of deity. Seems to me that Saul knew he was in the presence of God. This Q&A with Jesus would have a profound effect on Saul in many ways. For example, later he would develop a theology of the unity and oneness of Christians with their Lord. And you see it in the letters that he writes to the churches. Paul, Saul, who was the Apostle Paul, he would be the one who talked about the church as the body of Jesus Christ on the earth. He took all of this to heart. He understood that whatever he did to Jesus, he was, or to, to Jesus believers, he was doing to Jesus as if they were his physical body on the earth. And he gave, uh, you know, this theology of the body of Christ. And so it's, it's very interesting just to see how these thoughts began to develop in the mind of this fantastic saint. Jesus said something revealing to Saul. He said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. That indicated that Jesus had been goading Saul for some time, but Saul had been resisting. One goad that we can for sure identify was the shining face of Stephen as he was being pelted with stones and martyred. We know that because Saul was there. Another goad would have been the words Stephen spoke while dying. Back in Acts 7, we read... They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What a profound effect that would have had to have on Saul, goading him. I bet that every one of the men and women that Saul persecuted and imprisoned and murdered 
was just like Stephen. To Paul, it was Stephen all over again. And, and, and he, he's probably looking for just one, just one Christian that would not be like Stephen, that would not have that, that supernatural sense of the presence of Jesus Christ, that would, that would maybe renounce their faith and, and apostatize. And I'm going to bet that none of them did. Every one of them was a goad. The harder Saul kicked against them, the more it pricked him. You know, some animals, some children can be very stubborn. I don't recommend the goad at home, by the way. I mean, you guys are really hard this morning. But, uh, you know, I mean, some, there, some children, you can tell them no. You know, little kids, you're going to say no. Man, they start weeping and trembling. Others, no. 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 No, no, no. You know, and it just goes on and on, you know, until, until it's on. But, uh, you know, and so, you know, Saul, he just, you know, goad after goad after goad. I mean, he's getting bruised and bloodied in his conscience. How is this possible? I'm breaking up families. I'm, I'm tearing apart lives. I'm imprisoning people. I'm, I'm killing people. And this movement expands and the, the people are filled with grace and the presence of God. Now, our episode thus far suggests two applications for us. The first and most obvious is that Jesus is already at work in the lives of non-believers to goad them towards faith. The Lord has many means at his disposal to prick the hearts and minds of people who are on a path towards hell. Maybe the people that are the most antagonistic to you and your witness, that give you the most trouble, are the ones being pricked the hardest. They're kicking the heart. God is really at work in their life, and, and they don't know anything else to do but to keep piling it on. Maybe they can get you to crack. And that brings us to our second it's a less obvious but more important application, and that's the, the Lord's goading often involves you as a believer in relationship with this non-believer, especially when they somehow mistreat or persecute you. It is then that you can be like Stephen and not want the Lord to charge them with their sin. It is then they can see a radical transformation within you. In the account of Stephen, we read that his face was like that of an angel, Certainly, there was a peacefulness in his expression, but it might indicate his face shone with light from within. Saul had seen this. Now, a light, a similar light shone around Saul, the same light, the light from heaven. By the way, Saul, we know he was a, a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a small sect within Judaism who believed in the supernatural, they believed in miracles. They believed in angels. In a sense, when, Paul looked, when Saul looked on these Christians, though at this point he hated their theology, he couldn't understand how a crucified man who died a criminal's death could be the Lord of glory. He, he didn't see that yet. He looked at them, though, and he saw in them that which he believed was possible but couldn't achieve in his own life by keeping the law. It, it was right in front of him. 
This man was in such turmoil. It's not going too far to say that you are a goad in the hands of Jesus. When you are filled with his spirit and let his light shine forth, it has the potential to reveal the risen Lord to them. Your life and testimony can be the spotlight that shines upon or around non-believers, encouraging them to ask, who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? Verses 6 through 9, Jesus guides you along his way. If there's any debate about the first use of the word Lord, there's none in Saul's second utterance. So he, verse 6, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Saul was saved in this encounter. Later, Saul would write as the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's exciting because that's exactly what happened on the road to Damascus. He confessed the, Jesus as Lord and he believed that God had raised him from the dead because he was talking to him. And Paul, Saul, looking back on that, he says, that's what it takes to be saved. Confession of faith and by faith knowing that the Lord has risen from the dead. Charles Ryrie adds, and I quote, Saul was one of those rare persons who settled the matter of life service at the same time he settled the question of the salvation of his soul. Saul was fully at the disposal of Jesus and he would be from that point forward. The Lord only gave Saul the very next step, literally. He said, just get up and put one foot in front of the other until you get to Damascus, and then I'll tell you what to do. I really don't like putting things together. I read the instruction manual. It doesn't always make sense to me. It's translated from Chinese to French and then to English, I think, is how all that works. Everything, well, everything's made in China now. It says right on there, made in China, and so... You know, there's not a whole crew of English people over there telling you how to... So it's made in China, translated into French probably. And then, so I'm reading, I can't understand it. But I, I've learned the value of going one step at a time. Because I've had to take apart so many things. I mean, I know what it's going to look like at the end. I, I always take the box and I put it up where I can see. It's going to look like a filing cabinet when I'm done. It's going to have drawers and handles, and it's just what I want. And then it's once, and then I always get, you know, I miss a step, and then I have to, luckily, it's, you know, hopefully it's not glued, you know, but then you have to go and redo the thing. So step at a time, and you can't really understand it, especially all these weird locking things that they have now, you know, you know where you twist it and it holds it in place. It's all garbage anyway. But anyway, uh, and... and um, and then voila, you get to the end finally. So I know what it's going to look like, but I have to do it a step at a time, even though it might confuse me. God is putting you together a little at a time as you walk along a path set for you as his disciple. You cannot profitably skip any of the steps and then arrive at the place of completion where you are conformed into the image of Jesus and are like him. I would like to skip a lot of steps in my life. Anything that involves suffering or affliction or pain or sorrow or anything in that category whatsoever, I want to skip. Uh, but if I skip those steps, then I'm not going to look like the filing cabinet that God intends me to look like when I'm done. Uh, my drawers aren't going to work. Uh, I'm going to be useless, okay? 
So getting up and walking into Damascus wasn't going to be so easy. Verse 7, the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. The men who journeyed with Saul didn't see the Lord. The other accounts advise you that they heard something, but not intelligibly. They didn't understand the conversation. Reminds me of any service in which the gospel is being presented to a group of non-believers. Some of them may respond. They see the Lord by faith. They hear His voice by faith. Others, even though they've heard the exact same talk, they've heard the exact same songs, been in the same room, they don't respond at all. Some of them don't even remember years later they were ever there. Maybe this morning you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian. And you're sitting there saying, hey, you told me this was going to be over at 1130, and now it's 1132. And, And you're not even hearing this, and you're thinking, what is this guy talking about? Whereas others are, are hanging on everywhere saying, wow, that's, thank you, Lord, that's so beautiful. It's a mystery that we can never fully comprehend. Our responsibility is to just to present the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit and allow God to open the eyes of the hearers. And so Saul was physically blind, but he could see. His traveling companions could see but they were spiritually blind. As a blind man, he would need to be led by the hand into town. Now, you have to, I think, picture the scene a little bit. This little core of men and Saul, I, you know, they're like a little band of bounty hunters. I've seen ads for that show, Dog the Bounty Hunter. Have you seen that? I mean, that guy looks like a bounty hunter. I would just give up if those guys, they're all dressed in black leather. They're either going to a, a bar afterwards or they're, you know, they're bounty hunters, you know, and stuff. And they've got all kinds of gear on and stuff. I mean, they're, you know, they make an impression on you. I mean, if I showed up at your office and say, hi, I'm Gene the bounty hunter and I've got my texting phone and if you don't surrender to me, I'm going to text somebody, you know, I mean, but I mean, dog, the bounty hunter comes in and he's got, you know, he's guys with leather and chains and stuff. All right, I'm going. I know it's me, you know, so these guys, they, you know, whatever, they want to make this grand entrance with the letters from the high priest. Instead, and I don't know if anybody was looking for their arrival, probably so. Instead, they come in and essentially it's a blind man and his nurses, who are, are leading him along. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, you're just wrong. I mean, this is funny. It's tragic in many ways. It's serious, but it is humorous. Later on, Saul's going to have to be let out of the city in a basket because they're trying to kill him. I mean, this is funny stuff. And, and, and uh, the Lord, I think, has this humor about him. What became of the letters Saul was carrying? Man, would they sell on eBay. I mean, that, you know, hey, letters, the original letters to the apostle. Anyway, it's interesting to note that as a devout Jew and Pharisee following the law to the letter, Saul carried letters of authority from the high priest in Jerusalem. As a Christian, indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, he became a living letter and would be inspired by God to write letters filled with the grace of God. Verse 9 He was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Whether this was a fast or Saul just had no appetite 
it all amounts to the same thing. He was three days trying to sort out what all of this might mean. Everything he had lived for till that time had been taken from him and everything he had longed for had been given to him. Paul would look back on his conversion several times in his letters and he would talk about how he, everything he had done up until that point, he considered garbage and refuse and manure compared to the glory and the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ. Everything that he had been was, was taken from him and everything that he had longed for had been given to him. The last thing Saul had seen was the face of the risen Lord. All of his thinking and praying for three days would be illuminated by the glow of that glory. It's a good exhortation for us. We must see Jesus in his risen glory by the eye of faith. See him as he's portrayed in the scripture in order to study his word and have it illuminated. Jesus had been goading Saul. Now he was guiding him one step at a time. Saul had himself become a disciple of the way. He would learn to walk with Jesus day by day. There's so many passages of Scripture where we're reminded that God loves to walk with you. It's really how things started way back 7,000 or so years ago in the Garden of Eden. God created the heavens and the earth. He put a garden on the earth. He put man in the garden. He gave a woman to the man. And then for how long, we don't know, but it says every day he would come into the garden in the cool of the day and he would hang out with Adam and Eve just walking with them. Hey, check out this hydrangea. And that's cool. Is that the coolest thing you ever saw? And, and they would just walk together. God didn't need their fellowship, but he desired it. They were created to bring pleasure to him and to enjoy their relationship with God. They sinned. They sinned. They decided that it wasn't really... Well, it was a selfishness. They, they, they would rather be like God than just continue to, to walk with God. And their sin has brought into the world all the things that are terrible and awful today. Even then, God came to walk with them. He looked for them. He searched for them. They lied to God. Even then, he loved them. And he made a way for them to continue to walk with him. It was the sacrifice of that animal, probably a lamb, signifying the coming of Jesus Christ many centuries later who would be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the point here this morning is God still wants to walk with people. The difference is he can't walk with us in a beautiful garden, not yet. We're coming to that at the end of human history with the restoration of all things and the recreation of heaven and earth. Right now he loves to walk with us, but he has to walk with us on earth that is the result of our sin and the walks that we take with God are pretty dangerous they're pretty perilous they're very difficult but even then he walks with us and he wants to guide us through it you know a lot of people a lot of you still don't lock your doors you, know, you live in Hanford you know or outlying areas you don't lock your doors because after all you know this is Hanford well, after all, you have guns under your pillow is what it really is. But 
for whatever reason, you don't lock your doors, you know. I lock my doors. I lock all my doors. I lock my car doors. I lock my front door. I lock my bathroom doors. I mean, there are so many locked doors in my house, I can't even get in sometimes. I see representations in movies or in television of these big cities, Chicago, L.A. to a certain extent, New York, and then they show people who are just walking around late at night. And I always think, I can't enjoy the movie or the show because I think, I'd be terrified. I'm not walking around New York late at night. Are you kidding? I saw the Batman movies. I know what happens. <laughs> people come out of the woodwork, crazy people, and they kill you, you know? I mean, do people really do that? How do you do that in these old, decrepit neighborhoods where, you know, hobos and, I mean, it's crazy. It's insane. I mean, the world is a difficult, dark place. But God still walks with us in it, see, and that's the thing. And so people ask me all the time, and, and they, they really do. They ask me, you know, what do you tell people when something terrible has happened in their life? And they say, why did God allow this? I just made a death notification this past week over in Lemoore. I can't, I don't want to tell you all about it, but it, it's, it's, it's what it is. It's somebody's dead. Why? Why would God allow this? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. They sinned. We live in a fallen world. It isn't why would God allow this, is why haven't you turned to the Lord? He's made a way for you to walk with him. Our life on earth, it's a vapor. It's a, it, it appears for a moment, then it vanishes away. Everybody's headed to one of two destinations. We need to figure out which one it's going to be. There's heaven, there's hell. God is goading everyone. He was goading Paul, he's goading everyone to try and show them the way, the truth, and the life. And once you come into that knowledge, he guides you. Will you suffer? You bet. You'll suffer as a Christian, perhaps, or just in your Christian walk. Here was Saul murdering Christians, and so the Lord says, I need some candidates to be murdered. Stephen, will you allow yourself to be murdered for me so that we can goad Saul into salvation? I'm right there, Lord. Here am I. Send me. You want to murder me? That's your business because I'll see you. I mean, this is heavy stuff. This is, this is J. Vernon McGee would say, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is real, solid biblical Christianity. And so, it's a tough walk. I understand that. Everybody's suffering. And there's, uh, you know, if, if the Lord doesn't come back for us in the next week or month or year, some of you are going to suffer a lot more emotionally, physically. But the Lord will guide you. His grace will be sufficient for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. You are the Lord of glory. You still appear to people, Lord, on a pathway that they think is right, but that you know is leading to destruction. You goad them to that point, and then you reveal yourself. We don't know how or why or when you're going to do it in each person's life, but you do it. I pray, Lord, that more and more 
of our friends and our family, the people that we work with and live near, could come into a knowledge of the grace and salvation of Jesus Christ through our testimony, through our witness, through our shining, through our glowing. And Lord, it's not so much that you need to murder us as we just need to die to ourselves. Dying to ourselves that you might live in us and through us so that others could see the glory of the Lord. Eternal issues, Lord, that's what we want to be about. Not in a morbid way, not in a dejected way, but in a joyful way. I mean, Stephen, what joy. Look at the joy on his face and his words. His rocks were pelting him. Mm, Lord, he's a man of like passions with us. There's nothing special about him except that he loved you and you loved him back. And so I pray that we would enter into that kind of Christianity, Lord. And that like Paul, we would say every day, Lord, what do you want me to do? Not so much in a partnership as we sometimes think, but, but in a submission. Lord, what do you want me to do? And that we would remain sensitive to the voice of your spirit through the word, do the things that you call us to do, trust the results to you. Maybe some people will get saved. Maybe we'll share the gospel. Maybe we won't. But we'll enjoy our walk with you. It's no longer going to be in the cool of a beautiful garden, Lord. That's all changed until the end of time. You haven't changed. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You're the God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love, kindness, gentleness, and beauty. Fill our hearts with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. A couple of our guys are going to be down here at the end of the service to pray with you. If there's anything going on in your life that needs prayer, don't leave here unless you've been prayed for. Maybe the Lord's touched you in a certain way today. Maybe you need a healing in your life, physical or emotional. You need to be set free from something. Or you're worried or anxious about something. Whatever it is, we'd love to pray with you and for you. If the Lord tarries, we're getting together Wednesday morning with the men, 6.30 to 7.15. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Devotional studies there that last about 20 minutes. Praying for one another and enjoying one another's company. And then Wednesday night, we'll be meeting for our midweek study. Uh, devotional study in the book of First Chronicles. Time of worship. Uh, extended worship where we just wait on the Lord and see what he has for us. So God bless and keep you happy Father's Day. Uh, be the kind of father that you always wanted and that your heavenly father has modeled for you. God bless you.